Okay, we're in Matthew chapter 20. You really have to back up to chapter 19, verse 30, to understand the context of chapter 20. So Jesus finishes a discourse, and he says this, verse 30 of chapter 29. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. When I think about chapter 20 of Matthew, my outline is the upside-down kingdom. Hey, let there be light. Yeah, perfect, all right. So, when I think about chapter 20, my outline is the upside down. Thank you, Kelly Scudstad, the man, the myth, the legend. This chapter is just full of like the unexpected, where Jesus teaches or Jesus demonstrates something that's just crazy. And I think God has given us like these hints in the physical world that tell us, be prepared for the unexpected things in the kingdom. I'll give you one example. It's called the Mapemba effect. I've mentioned it before. It's called that because this guy that discovered it was a Tanzanian teenager called Mapemba. And he was doing an experiment for his science class in Tanzania, and he found that uh, when you try to freeze ice cream, warmer ice cream freezes faster than colder ice cream, which is a very important fact to know. If you want ice cream and you want it fast, heat it up first. So he presented this to his instructor and to his class, and the mocking stopped and the laughter stopped when the teacher tried it himself and found out, oh my goodness, it does freeze faster. Now this anomaly is called the Mapemba effect. And you can Google it if you want to. No one knows why it's true. But under certain circumstances, you take liquid that has water in it, and the warmer liquid, same amount, same everything, the warmer liquid will turn to a solid before the colder liquid. And there are, no one knows why. Everyone has their idea, supercooling or evaporation or the fact that the heat, you know, causes the molecules to move faster, they lose their energy faster. None of it makes sense because at some point it comes down to the same temperature as the cold stuff, right? Why does it keep going? So no one knows. It's just this anomaly. It's the upside downness of the world we live in, that there's mystery to it, that they're still like, huh, Whoa, that's the kingdom. The kingdom is mystery. mystery. It's mysterious. So I'll read it over because it's such a great story. But we look on Sunday at verse 1 through 16. I'll read it now. Brilliant story. For the kingdom of heaven is like, we talked about that on Sunday. This is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. And it says it's like, not it is. So some people push the parables of Jesus too far. He's not saying the kingdom of heaven is, he's saying it's like this. Well, what's it like? It's like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire 
laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went and going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, They grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give this last worker as I give to you. I am, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Sunday, I titled this message, Last Picked, and actually added a little bit in my own mind, First Paid. One more thought on it before we move on. This parable is a response to something Peter had said. So it's in the flow of the book of Matthew. So in chapter 19, Jesus is cruising along. This guy, a rich young ruler, comes to Jesus, asks him, hey, what do I need to do? Jesus has a conversation with him. And then eventually Jesus says, here's what you need to do. Sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow me, and then you'll be perfect. And the rich young ruler left sad because he had much possessions, right? So then Jesus talks about, hey, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get saved. And so his disciples say, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Right after that, Peter pipes up. Jesus, I've given everything away. What am I gonna get? (laughs) just a, he's awesome, man. He says what everybody wanted to say. He's just the guy that says it. So Jesus now is really responding in this parable to what Peter had said. What do I get? What is my reward? And remember, if you were here on Sunday, I said, there was one group that made a contract. Work a full day, get a denarius. And they got exactly what they expected. The next four groups of people hired at nine, hired at 12, hired at three, hired at five, working one hour. None of them wrote up a contract. They just said, or the master said to them, trust me that I will do what's right. And each of them were overpaid. So what is Jesus really saying to Peter? He's saying, trust 
that the master is generous. That's what he's saying. You need to trust that God is generous. The big picture of this story is that. Do you trust the generosity and goodness of God? Do we trust that? Do we know the denarius that each of us has actually been given? Like the fact that I, I was uh, down the Rogue River today uh, at Baker Park at like 5 o'clock or 4.30 or so. Uh, my son got a little remote control car. So he's driving around and I'm talking to this guy from San Francisco. And he just, he was saying how glad he is to have made it to Grants Pass. He's like, man, I, just, I can't. He goes, if I had discovered this 20 years ago, I'd have been here then. I thought, it's a blessing to have been born in this great little city. Beautiful rivers, good people, solid stuff to do, outdoors. Like, that's an advantage I was given. Do I thank God for that? I should. Or the fact that I went to Oregon State University, the premier university in Oregon. Some people <laughs> don't get to go to the premier university. What an advantage I was given. Right? I can just go down the line if I wanted to. There's all these things throughout my life. If I look back on I say, God, you have been so generous to me. Do you know how important it is to know that God is generous? Do you know that it actually begins to affect you? So on Sunday, I kept the studies down. I'm going to give them to you now. I read this brilliant study on these moms. They took these moms and they divided them into two groups. And, and one group of moms, they showed them this comedy. It was actually a Jerry Seinfeld show, a really funny Jerry Seinfeld show. So they showed them this Jerry Seinfeld show. And then they, they, they measured their happiness. They asked them some questions and, and how happy are you? And they were really happy after watching comedy. The other group, they didn't show them a comedy. They showed them this musician who had become very kind of good at what he did and, and very well known. And it was kind of a documentary how he had gone back and found this mentor of his when he was a boy that poured into him and gave him the love of music and all this stuff. And it was a documentary of how he searched out this mentor and came back to him as an old man at that point and said, thank you and gave him a hug. It was just a very heartwarming story. And then they measured these moms, how happy are you? And they're about the same happy, right? Comedy made them happy or this heartwarming story made them happy. And okay, they expected that. Then they took the moms and this is what they did. They then reunited the moms, the two groups of moms with their kids to see how do you now respond? Now that you're happy, two different kinds of happiness, now that you're happy, how do you respond to your kids? The first group that watched Jerry Seinfeld, they reacted normally to their kids, you know? A little brat, what are you doing? What have, you, have you been fighting? Have you, are you sharing? Kind of that stuff. The other group, the overwhelming majority of them, when they saw their child for the first time, guess what they did? Hugged them. Why? Because they just been seen, they just saw something that was gratitude, that was generous, that was yes, and, and yes, they were happy, but it was more than that. They were changed into a different kind of person. How important is it for us to see? Our Heavenly Father is generous and loving. Oh, it's so important. So important. I'm always looking when I study the Bible to see these indications of the Heavenly Father's generosity and goodness. And I just love verse 13. The guy that's complaining about the master, grumbling, causing problems, how does the master refer to him as? You miserable worker. Are you kidding me? I hired you. You're a day laborer. No, what does he say? Friend. Refers to him. I just love, that's 
God, kind, empathetic, generous. The more we see God that, the more we are immersed in his story of his kindness and generosity, you know what happens to each one of us? We're like those moms. We become kinder, more generous kind of people. It's huge. And that is not natural. The natural disposition of mankind is not that. Do you know that? Another study for you. And this one was done like back in the 90s, and I still have it because it's that good. They asked a bunch of people this question. Do you want scenario one or scenario two? Scenario one is this. You make 50 grand a year, which at that time was really good money, and all of your friends and family, they make 25 grand a year. That's scenario one. Scenario two is this. You make 100 grand a year, twice as much money. You're doing really well, but all of your crew makes $250,000 a year. So on this one, you're not making quite as much money, but you're top of the heap. This one over here, you're making a lot more money, but you're bottom of the heap. Guess what people chose? Scenario one. I don't care. I want to be top of my heap. I want to have bragging rights. I want to have more than everyone else, which is the problem in the story, right? It was the comparison between, they got more than me. There's a, there's a um, psychology has a term for this. It's called scarcity complex. We are never to be those that have scarcity complex. We're to be those that see God as so generous and compassionate and good that we're always just saying, oh, God is so good. God's got more than you can imagine. The prime message to me of the Bible is this. God is good and generous, and he's looking for a a group of people that trust his goodness and generosity. Have you heard me say that before? I hope you have, because I say it a lot. God is looking for a group of people that will trust him and his goodness and generosity. So that's the kingdom. So we have that. And then right after that, we have upside down number two. And I call this one dying to live. And Jesus, verse 17, was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he'll be raised on the third day. Third time Jesus has said this in the book of Matthew. This time he adds some more information. I'm not just gonna die I'm going to be mocked and flogged and delivered to the Gentiles. I'm going to throw a little burr in your saddle and I'm going to call this crockpot theology because you're going to have to stew on it until we get to chapter 27 where I'll try to suck it all together. But here's my question. In Western evangelical theology, when we think about Jesus, what do we say he came to do? Die for our sins, right? Like that's the standard answer. Why did Jesus come? To die for our sins. The theological term is penal substitutionary atonement, right? He died the death we deserve. He took the penalty, right? He substituted for us. He atoned for us so that we can now be raised up and live the life that he earned. Penal substitutionary atonement. Christ died for our sins. That's really what we believe. So that's Western evangelical. Uh, and, and 
I'm not arguing against that. But here would be my thought. If that's what Jesus came to do, why does he need to be flogged? Why does he need the crown of thorns? Why does he have a bag put over his head and club repeatedly as they proclaim, prophesy if you're a prophet who just smacked you? Why is all this other stuff? Was it necessary too? If it was, how many times does he need to be flogged? 10 times? 20 times? 50 times? How many thorns need to be crushed into his skull? 50? 100? 200? Where's the limit of it? Okay, you get what I'm saying? You get this conundrum like, well, right. If all he was coming was it for penal substitutionary atonement, why didn't he just come and die? Why is there all this other stuff attached to the death of Christ? Let that stew for a while. And I'll say this, because there was something bigger going on. And what we can tend to do is we can tend to systemize things where I don't think the Bible does that. The Bible tells a story. And the story starts a long time ago in a place called Eden. And in Eden, there's a really bad dude who causes Adam and Eve to commit suicide, essentially. God doesn't kill Adam and Eve, does he? He says, when you eat of this, you will die. What's he saying to them? You'll you'll commit suicide. I'm warning you, this tree is bad. If you eat it, I'm not gonna kill you. It will kill you. You'll commit suicide, all right? They were tempted to do that by a serpent. Revelation 12 tells us the serpent is Satan. And what does God say to the serpent? It's Genesis 3.15. He says, listen to me, Satan. The seed of the woman is coming and it will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. Is that penal substitutionary atonement? Mm-mm. What is that? That's battle. That's war. The terms used of Jesus are, are war terms, torture, flogging. It, it, it's a battle. It's much bigger than just substitutionary penal substitutionary atonement. As true as that is, there's this other part of it, and I call it the triumph of Christ, Colossians 2.15, that Jesus made a public display as a triumph over the enemy, and that is just as important. And it's the long story of the Bible that Jesus is the greater than David. He fought the greatest enemy, not a Goliath, but Satan. He's the greater than Moses that freed us from the tyranny of the kingdom of darkness, And the Lord of that, the prince of this world, Satan, the supra-pharaoh. So stir on that. I'll try to tie that in when we get to chapter 27. But it's bigger, much, much bigger. Upside down kingdom, though. Jesus says, in order for me to triumph, I have to be defeated. I have to be rejected in order for me to triumph. It's the upside down kingdom again. Then verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. I love this one. (laughs) And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in the kingdom. Moms. And Jesus answered, and this gets very interesting, you do not know. The word you there is second person plural. So while mom's asking Jesus, he kind of knows, uh, this was a little bit bigger than just mom. 
You do not know what you are asking. So now he's talking to all three. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant. Remember the parable we just talked about. Making contracts to make sure you get a reward. Is that what these two dudes are doing? Exactly the same thing. It's what Peter had asked about. It's the entire parable. Now, these guys are asking the same thing. We want to make a contract with you, Jesus. We'll go through this. We'll drink this cup of suffering if you make sure. (laughs) Just fascinating. But it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This one is kingdom greatness. And it's flipped on its head. So you have this mom, her two sons, James and John, it appears that they had a conversation because Jesus turns up plural right away. And they must have been talking about how awesome it would be to be the right and left-hand men of Jesus. And mom, I'm sure, is like, yes, you guys would be so good at that. Yes, you should. Well, how's Jesus going to know we want this position? Who's going to ask him? What does mom say? Oh, I will ask him. I'll march right in there. Isn't that a mom? Dads don't do that, do we? Dads are very different from what I've noticed. So if there's some kind of a a conflict or something that happens or or something that's kind of out of whack or something that's not quite right, what do dads say? It'll work itself out. Don't worry about it. You know, come on, sweetie, it's going to be fine. It'll work out. And the woman, the wife, the mom says, oh, yeah, it'll work out because I'm going to make sure it does. That's mom. So mom is just being what mom is. I I do not fault her one bit. She wants the best for her boys. So she goes for it. Good for her. But here's what they'd missed. They'd missed verses 1 through 19, the upside-downness of the kingdom. And they just agree with Jesus to go get trashed. Because when Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink of? What cup is that? cup of suffering. Because in the garden, he says, Lord, if there be any other way, let this cup pass by me. (laughs) So they just agreed, (laughs) trash us, please. The same trashing that's going to happen to you, let that happen to us. Not the best move on their part. I'll tell you this. I think the biggest enemy to your joy is you. It's me. I'm the biggest enemy to my joy. When I start doing stuff like this, I become the biggest enemy. When I start believing that the world is all about me, I am the center and this entire world has got to be about me. Look out. And then in the, in the competition here, these two guys make 10 new enemies, the other 10 disciples. They were indignant at them. Look out for making the world about you and trying to get that position You make enemies and you're miserable. You get trashed. So I read a book that I really liked. It's uh, 
Leo Tolstoy, if you've read him, he's an amazing author, Russian author, and it was called The Death of Ivan Illich. Fascinating book. Guy who thinks he uh, has a terminal disease and, and just the, the he, Tolstoy was really good at getting human emotion. And he has a line in that book that I underlined and I wrote down because it's so good. He said this, what bothered Ivan the most was that people did not pity him like he felt he should be pitied. Why was he miserable? The terminal disease? All his other problems? No, he was miserable because he felt like you haven't made me the center of the universe. You're not pitying me like I should be pitied. A key to joy is knowing it's not about me. You'll enjoy your wife more. You'll enjoy your kids more. You'll be a better husband. You you will be very, very hard to offend. People that don't think they're sin in the world are really hard to offend. They don't get offended. You'll be better with your kids. You'll enjoy the soccer game. Instead of trying to live through your son, represent, boy, come on. You'll just be like, ah, this is awesome. I'm having so much fun, right? He's a five-year-old, for crying out loud. If nobody pees themselves, it's a win. I'll go to pizza afterwards. I mean, that's the way you look at life. But when it's, oh, I got to have this position, you end up getting trashed. I am we are the worst enemies to our joy. And we start trying to make ourselves the center. I gotta be here, I gotta be here. If I'm not here, I'm not, look out. You'll be offended. You'll be a terrible dad, terrible husband, terrible wife. It just happens because you think the entire world is about you and everyone's to serve you. So how do we break from that? Well, Jesus tells us, and it's super hard. Super hard, right? Verse 27. Whoever would be first. He doesn't say you shouldn't desire being first. He redirects it upside down. You want to be first? You want the right and left hand side? Great. Here's how you get there. Become a slave. The Greek word there is doulos. It literally means slave. I'll tell you, this little text and Luke 17, which defines a slave some of the hardest, hardest texts for me personally. And if you know Luke 17, I'll, I'll replay it for you really fast. Luke 17, 7 through 10 says this. Jesus defines what a slave is. He says a slave goes out and works all day in the field. He puts in his 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Hard, hot, difficult. Comes in after all that work. The master's at the table. The master sees the slave come in, the servant come in. Does the master, Jesus say, does the master say to the servant, bro, you look tired. Sit down. Let me make you a meal. No. What does the master say? I'm hungry. And so the servant says, oh, oh, right, right, right. Goes over, fixes a meal, serves the master, cleans up everything, tucks the master into his bed, and then he eats some food. That's a slave. I read that, and it was at a certain time in my life, and it stunned me, and here's why. I like to serve, but I don't want to be a slave. I like to put in my time and then say, all right, I punched the clock. I'm good now. I've done what, what's expected of me. I've put in my 12 hour shift, whatever it is. Now it's my time. Slaves don't get to say that. See, when I serve, I'm in control. When I'm a slave, Jesus is in control. And where it was brought to a head for me was, it was a time where I felt just kind of overwhelmed by everything. And then my wife and I took into 
uh, foster kids. They, they were, they were um, my niece and my nephew, so we were really the only option for them. And it just felt like, I was like, are you kidding me? Aren't I doing enough? Isn't my 12-hour day enough? And it was right at that time that I happened to be reading Luke. I read Luke 17, and it was like a slap in my face. Matt, you, you like to serve, but you don't really want to be my servant. You don't really want to be my servant. And until you learn to really be my servant, you're going to keep making this mistake. You're going to keep trying to make yourself the center, and it's going to make you miserable. And if you'll just allow me to press you a bit here and push you a bit, I'm going to free you from something that will allow you to enjoy the kingdom so much more. Because verse 28 should be our mission statement. And this is what Jesus says. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mention that verse in every wedding that I do. You want to be a good husband? You did not get married to be served, but to serve and to give your life for your spouse. That's good marriage. You're no longer the center. It's not about you. And you make a good husband. You make a good wife. That's what the kingdom is about. Up, sigh, down, and hard. If you're ever put in this situation, remember this. Because it'll be hard, but the fruit of it is brilliant. Brilliant. So then Jesus ends with one final upside down, and I call this one blind-sighted. Verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> kind of funny. Hmm, let me pray about that. Let me think. Hmm, what, do you, what, what, what would we want Jesus to do for us? I don't know. Ham sandwich? No, that's, we can't eat that. <laughs> it's just kind of funny. Like, <laughs> right? Well, so they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. The blindsided. So whenever you read a text and you kind of go, hmm, it doesn't seem to make sense. It's a good time to really think about it. This is one of those that didn't make sense to me. All right? So this, this story is found in Mark and in Luke. And just to clear up, like, there's this little bit of confusion with it. Luke says that it was as Jesus was approaching Jericho that he meets these two guys. Matthew says, verse 29, as they went out of Jericho. You can compare Luke 18, 35 to this text. So what's the deal? Is the Bible wrong? Well, I was just in Jericho. Uh, it's the oldest city in the world. And it's also the lowest city in the world. Pretty fascinating. Well, what I did not know until this last trip was there's two Jerichos. There's the old city of Jericho. And then Herod, right before Jesus was born, built another city and guess what he called it? Jericho, just to confuse people, right? Where do you live, Jericho? Which one? So Jesus was leaving one Jericho and approaching the other Jericho. It's real simple. So just clarity. But what's happening here? You, you have this, this rebuking of these guys, and I, it just puzzled me. I'm like, why? 
right? Well, here's what happens. Jesus has his disciples. And then when they get to this area, it's a populated area. And all of a sudden, verse 29 says, great crowds joined him. So now it's his disciples plus this massive crowd. And in verse 31, who's rebuking these two blind beggars? The crowd, right? Not his disciples, it's the crowd. Now, why are they rebuking them? Don't beggars do this? Isn't that what a beggar does? Like make enough commotion so that people notice him or notice them and get, so we can get some money? That's this is what beggars do. Hey, look at me. I've got a problem. Help me. They cry out. It's what they're always doing. So why do these people in this crowd feel it necessary to rebuke the beggars? What's that? They're idiots. There you go. Plain and simple. It's because of what, how they refer to Jesus. What do they call him? Son of David. What is that a term for? It's, mess, it's messianic. So the beggars were calling Jesus Messiah. The disciples already knew that, but the crowd did not. And so the crowd is like, He's not Messiah. Come on. You can't be attaching that phrase to him. And so when they rebuked him, what did the beggars do? Crowded all the more. Lord, son of David. What's fascinating in the gospel of Matthew, so far, there have been only three times the son of David have been, has been used. Chapter nine, guess who it was? Two blind people. Chapter 15, it was the Canaanite woman, but she was faking it, if you remember back then. If you don't, no big deal. She was using it as a ploy, kind of flattery. And then right here again, chapter 20, two blind people. I love this. It's the upside downness of the kingdom. Who are the two people that see the truth? These great crowds, who are the two people that actually see the truth? Blind people. <laughs> the last people you'd expect. The overlooked, the rebuked are right. To me, this is such a huge lesson in my life. So in the Gospel of Luke, you have Jesus being born, and then Jesus is taken to the temple to be dedicated. And he goes to the temple. The temple was the center of the religious, the political, the smarts, the intellectual. It was Yale, Princeton, New York, Washington, D.C., all crammed into one. You've got at the temple the scribes and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, the top people, the smart people. So Jesus is brought there to the temple. Levites are there, priests are there, high priests is there. Who recognizes Jesus? A guy named Simeon, remember him? Grabs a hold of Jesus, takes him up in the air like this and says, now I can die. You do that today, you're gonna get shot, Right? <laughs> Baby dedication Sunday, someone does that. There's going to be someone loaded, and it's just over. <laughs> so I can die. And then the other person that recognizes him, 84-year-old Anna, the widow <laughs> and a prophetess, right? So modern day, we'd say this, the two people that recognize Jesus, the crazy dude with the sandwich board out on G Street, <laughs> right? And the flag-waving tambourine lady. Those are the two people that see him. When I read that and I thought that through, I thought, how often have I missed 
blind seeing people and not listen to them because, oh, you're blind. Oh, you're old. Oh, you're nutty. And when I thought back about this, it was a couple of years ago, I actually journaled some stuff down about people that unexpectedly spoke into my life. I'm not talking like esoteric theology, but real practical things that have actually steered my life in the direction I'm at right now. And most of them would be people that I would say, they could never speak into my life. And it was them that God used to speak and direct me. Be careful of rebuking blind people. I think my position now is when somebody comes with a sandwich board or a tambourine or just in a way that I'm uncomfortable with, I now, before rebuking them, I really try to receive and say, Lord, are you speaking to me? Are you using someone that I would never think you would use because you love to do that? Are you doing that? Can I have ears to hear what the Spirit would say? I think one of the main ways that God speaks to us directionally today as the body of Christ is through the saints. One another, speaking, directing, and very often it comes from the person you least expect. Your five-year-old son, your wife, your husband. (laughs) Very often it comes, the one person you would never expect it. Let us be sure to have ears to hear what God is saying. Receive. Analyze it. I'm not saying if some goofball says, God told me you should marry me, that you should. But at least listen and analyze and pray. And you might just hear from blind beggars and Simeons and Annas in a way that translates into a transformed life. And so, Father, I thank you for this great chapter. I pray that we would be a people that welcome the upside-downness of your kingdom. That we would have ears to hear how you want to speak to us through unlikely sources. That we wouldn't rebuke and shut down voices that you could be using in our lives. So even tonight, Lord, This week, tomorrow morning, Lord, may you circumcise our ears. May they have better hearing to hear what you might say. May we have Acts 13 moments where your spirit works through your people to get me, us, where you want us to be. So work, we pray. I pray as we partake in the elements. I pray that the boundary between heaven and earth would grow thin. That we would embody remembrance, that we would feel your presence in these elements, Lord. That you would, even as Romans 6 says, live a resurrected life through us, empowering, changing, moving, I pray. May our hearts Be hearts that are ready for that. May we receive in faith, trusting that you are a good, generous God. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As the elements are handed out, would you hold them and we're gonna partake together as a body.
eternity in your hand you spoke the earth into motion my soul now to stand you stood before my failure and carry the cross for my shame my sin weighed upon your shoulders my soul now to stand what could I say and what could I do Offer this heart, oh God, completely to you. So I'll walk upon salvation, your spirit alive in me. This life to declare your promise, my soul now to stand. So what could I say? And what could I do? But offer this heart, oh. There's a verse I've been thinking about. It's in 2 Timothy 2, 8. And it says this. It's Paul speaking to Timothy. Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Does that sound like, like the gospel to you? Like I read that and I thought, well, where's the death, burial, where's the cross? Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. How fascinating is that? The center of what Paul is saying to Timothy right there is, it's the resurrection. It's the resurrection. New life. And if you read 1 Corinthians, when Paul talks about communion there, he actually ends by saying this, that we're to remember the Lord's death until his return. It's both there. 
Because the cross without the resurrection is not good news. The cross without the resurrection means God died. But the cross with the resurrection is fantastic. It's what we celebrate. So if some people get real somber around communion, I get real celebratory. I just think, oh my goodness, Jesus is alive and he's interceding for me and his life can now be lived in me and now I have power and he's gonna renew everything and one day all that's evil is gonna be thrown away and I can't wait till he returns. That's what I think about with communion. I think it's brilliant and beautiful and it just shows the kingdom, the upside down nature. Death brings life. His death brought me life and now I get to live in brilliance. So I just want you to take, I don't know, 30 seconds. I want you to, it's called the Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving. I want you to just give thanks. Just take 30 seconds to give thanks for a bunch of things that maybe you've overlooked that have been the denarius that God has given to you.